In this podcast, Karen Harris from Bain & Company talks about her report on Labor 2030, the future of workers. So, stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Karen Harris, uh, who is a managing director of Bain & Company. a brief bio um, so as uh, karen is uh, managing director of bain and company's macro trends group she is based out of uh, new york office uh, karen frequently works with institutional investors to embed macro strategy into their investment strategy and due diligence she is uh, regularly featured in major media outlets including uh, wall street journal financial times forbes economic times of india uh, kaijeng china CEO of Forums Australia, Bloomberg Television, Global Enterprise, uh, Global Entropolis Singapore. She is a member of um, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relationship, and the Economic uh, Economics Club of New York. She also serves on the board of Pencils uh, of Promise, a nonprofit that partners with local communities in developing countries to build school. focusing on early education high potential females and building young leadership uh, at home and abroad kiran has an mba with distinction from harvard business school and a jd from columbia law school she graduated with honors from stanford university uh, where she receives a ba in economics and ba in international relations with that kiran welcome to the podcast thank you By the way, that's a very stark um, uh, resume. So, why don't we uh, we we talk about your journey? Like, what brought you to here, and and uh, if you can throw some light on your background. Sure. So, I joined Bain um, after Bain was my second job out of college. Actually, I worked for an M and A advisory, another consulting firm, before that, uh, and I joined Bain because I just. loved the people i met who worked here and over that time i had always had a passion for international relations economics that's what i majored on in col- in in college and somehow found myself in a job that did domestic microeconomics so the fit for my interests uh, wasn't perfect <laughs> the fit for my uh, personality and happiness was very high and it took a long time to resolve those i took some time off and worked in economic development in zimbabwe i worked in jordan in the middle east i went back to business school i went back to law school and then finally uh about my goodness about a decade ago uh, bain uh, and i well, bain was willing to partner with me and my co-founder austin kimson to start uh, this macro trends group so finally i was able to do what i wanted where i wanted um but it was a bit of a, a journey to get here and i think it uh, it speaks to the kind of place actually that bain is as an employer that they were willing to let me bang around experimenting and running off to uh, uh, every end of the earth before i finally found my home uh, home back here interesting um thank you for walking us through that so what is what is macro trends group if you can shed some light on that so the macro trends group looks at economic social political demographic and technological trends that happen over long periods of time that impact our clients in the business world and they aren't there there are no surprises we could find a cool way of putting them in a chart or bucketing them but the reality is any uh, intelligent person out in the market would be able to list 
the, the same things that we talk mm-hmm. about. Our job is to have the time uh, and the resources to really think through what matters, what doesn't matter, what's important, and more importantly, so what do I do about it, right? Because it's easy to to be either delighted or more often these days, I think, terrified at the state of the world, but that doesn't actually help you do anything if you're in charge of people's livelihoods, if you're starting a business, if you're trying to figure out what to do with your own life job-wise. So that's sort that's the role we try to at least support, if not play. Interesting. And, and what's what's your role um, in in this? So I am the, I'm the managing director. I run the team globally. We have uh, a small permanent team, and then we have the good fortune to work with different groups of, of people from our offices around the world on a rotating basis, depending on the problem that we're looking at. Interesting. And and um, thank you so much for walking us through that, by the way. And so what is the what is this what triggers the this research about understanding the labor market and 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 so if you can if you can first um, walk us through what that report is and and sort of uh, uh, give us more insight on what what is uh, in that report and then, and then what triggered it we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So we tend to focus our research on places where we feel that the consensus is just wrong. So we've done research in the past, uh, in 2011, 2012, we focused on what we called capital superabundance and why we thought interest rates would stay low for a long period of time beginning early in the decade. And that was at a time when many uh, CFOs and even people in the market were talking about the potential for hyperinflation because the U.S. central, the central banks were printing money. And so where we feel that there's a dangerous contradiction between uh, our perception of the truth and the market's perception of the truth, that's where we really dig in. Then we did a piece on what we call spatial economics or uh, really post-urbanization. The idea that we'll all live in advanced economies and megacities struck us as uh, unlikely given that so many people didn't want to live in megacities. So people don't accidentally wake up one morning living somewhere. Um, Anyone who's moved knows that that's a hideous, painful process to get there. And so really, uh, kidding aside, looking at how people were deploying themselves and saying, well, while cities will grow as populations grow, actually more people are leaving. The, the growth of cities is slowing relative to the growth of population in advanced economies. People are able, because of technology, to live farther and farther away from the city center. So those are the sorts of projects we take on. And initially with this piece on labor uh, 2030, this collision of demographics, automation, and inequality, we started with a single piece on demographics, looking at the demographics, there's not a lot of room for debate around the size of the workforce in 20 years. Those people are mm. born. Uh, mm. And if you're having a debate about whether an asteroid will hit the country, well, then that's a, that's way outside our realm and also not a uh, not an event that you can really plan around. So it was more the perception of where the market would be. So there was a period mm. three or four years ago when if you spoke if you read the paper, you would think 
that we would be flooded with a tide of uh, the silver wave that and uh, that people uh, demented people walking around in dentures and diapers were the future of the country. The exaggeration was very high. On the other hand, there was this belief that millennials were going to stay in cities, never own anything, share everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and behave completely differently than prior generations. And both of those things struck us as unlikely, right? Mm-hmm. As, uh, as like a snapshot of where things might have been. So arguably millennials who were never going to share anything or uh, leave cities at that time were single. So it's pretty, it's a, it's a lot less interesting a newspaper headline to say, guess what? Single people like to live near other single people. Hmm. Awesome, right? That doesn't really take a whole lot of research, but it's a much more interesting story if you spin it into millennials are fundamentally different. Well, it turns out that, as you know, as a millennial yourself, once you have a child, sharing lots of stuff becomes a little less uh, appealing to the people with whom you're sharing and so forth. And so we started teasing apart these different generational trends. And as we started looking at the impact of the slowing workforce in the U.S., in Europe, the shrinking workforce, China's shrinking workforce, and the, we said, well, okay, so in the absence of any other change, what will we see? We'll see a world in a, of stagflation because older mm. people are living longer, healthier lives. They're consuming, interestingly enough, a 66-year-old today consumes like a 56-year-old did in the 80s because people are healthier, because they're staying semi-attached to the workforce. But as they retire, because that's a a regulatory or a legislative issue rather than a health issue in most places, capacity comes down. And of course, we're seeing a little bit of that today. Wages are rising. We're at full employment plus. There's a shortage of workers in areas. Well, okay. That's not the stopping point, though, because we knew from our earlier research on technology, we know from Bain's work with its clients, Uh, what's happening in the industrial sector, what's happening, what we see on the ground in places like Japan, is that the automation that was confined really to manufacturing for many decades is now being developed for the service sector. Machine learning, human hand dexterity, artificial intelligence, all combining together to disrupt what is the biggest sector of the economy in, in advanced economies and critically important in nations like China, as we see that automation happen, we see this interesting swing where we have a period of, a short period of rising wages, shortage of workers, but then bang, what happens? The uptake of automation creates new workers, right? The new workforce is is this robot generation, uh, for lack of a, for this, uh, for lack of a better term, it overcorrects the problem. And so first we're short of workers, then wages go up. We see as wages go up, the return on investment in automation goes up, uh, goes up as well. The substitution mm. becomes more appealing. And then we find ourselves in a period where, where the boom of investment in automation covers up the fact that we're mm. losing jobs. Uh, losing jobs through substitution, and then we end up with this boom-bust cycle that we're talking about in the next decade, where you see the erosion of a brief period, again, of rising wages, a better-off period for the middle class, but that soon uh, begins to erode 
as automation replaces those jobs. And then finally, once the boom of investment in automation is finished, we see the, the water pull back, you know, the, tide, the tide going out, and the exposure of the loss and displacement during that time period. So that's the that's where we ended up. That's how we ended up. It took us a year. It almost took me a year to explain that right there. But that's how you sort of start on one thing, and as you chisel away, end up saying, "Wait, wait, wait," and coming up with a full story. Interesting. And and what triggered this report? Like, what was what? Like, why 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 study um, labor markets for 2030? So yeah. Well, first, of course, it's. It, we had called it originally the ages and stages of life. We'd observed that life stages were changing. It wasn't just the bad reporting on millennials, but mm-hmm. we asked ourselves, why is it that this seems interesting to people that millennials are uh, seem to be living differently? Well, family formation's been delayed. And so there's a new period of life we call extended adolescence where people are working, have some income, but don't have families and don't have mortgages yet. So that was one stage of life. And if you look at when people start to have babies, suddenly the narrative is much more about the life cycle corridor than it is about an age. So a 25-year-old today can't be compared to a 25-year-old 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. They have to be compared to someone who's in the same stage of life. We saw the same thing in a period we call pre-retirement. The, the, the average age of an entrepreneur a few years ago was 42. So it's not kids mm-hmm. in hoodies, it's people who are in their 50s and 60s, either because they're displaced from the workforce because of the, the construction boom bust, the housing crisis, or because they're just, if you're, if you're 65 and retire, and you're, you know, when, when, the, when uh, Bismarck and the Prussians put these retirement plans into place for the first time, you were meant to go home and quietly drop dead really quickly after you were done mm. working. Now, my grandmother just passed away over over the holidays. She was 105. No. So if you're going to live for 40 years after retirement, you're how much gardening can mm. you do, really? And so we find people finding new ways to occupy themselves, both for economic reasons and for, you know, they're vital and healthy and interested and they're staying attached to the workforce. So the phases of life changed. And once we started looking at the populations there and what that meant for the workforce, we looked within each country and then globally put together these different workforces and the startling uh, deceleration of overall workforce growth also became clear. So with different phases of life within a country, that's where we started and then looked at, wow, but overall, the workforce, hmm. which had grown globally, contributing a, a third of OECD growth, almost half of U.S. growth uh, for up through the 80s, suddenly actually uh, nearly halting in many of these countries, shrinking or slowing. Wow, that's a giant change. And that's where we started. That This seemed like a really profound shift that wasn't that was being uh, talked about, but not driven down to what does that mean for me? Interesting. Uh- Fascinating, by the way. So, <clears throat> I think one thing that I was um, I was thinking about uh, when when I looking at the report was like when you get this task of hey, let's study how the labor market's going to be in twenty thirty, yeah. right? How do you get started with that thought? Like there, because I think um, so having done so, if suppose this this report would have done in maybe nineteen or nineteen fifties or sixties or seventies when the, the the cycle of uh, progression was 
pretty predictable. There were like not very spikes going around. When you do take this behemoth task of let me see where the labor market is heading to in say 2030, what are some of the considerations that you have you have to make? Like how, how do you go about designing something like that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, what drives economic growth? It's it's productivity, and productivity is really either more warm beating hearts, right, more labor, or or more capital. The combination of the two. That's what makes people more productive. So we saw this manufacturing boom uh, rolling through many parts of the world because we were creating new forms of capital that made people more efficient, not because we had more. Uh, and at the same time, the baby boom generation entered the workforce in the 1970s, we had three really interesting things happen in the 1970s that aren't going to be repeated in our lifetime. Um, one is this large baby boom generation. That could possibly be repeated, but we, but mm. it would have to be a later one. Those people aren't born right now. So unless uh, the group that's having to the millennials have a, have a large population, that we, and we won't see that for 20 years. So the baby boomers entered the workforce in large numbers. Then we had women begin to enter the workforce. So the workforce was men. In 1970, labor force participation was under, well under 50% in most countries, so closer to 30, 40%. By, uh, it, um, it grew to be today 70, 75%. We can't repeat mm. that because they're working. And so we have that enormous growth. And then finally, uh, a, a huge portion of the global workforce was the integration of China into the global market, starting in the mm -hmm. 90s, really accelerated when they entered the WTO um, in the early part of this uh, millennium, this, this century. But it, that's not to say that Chinese workers uh, migrated all over the world, but that Chinese production entered the workforce, and that, of course, has a component of Chinese labor. And then second, India. India entering, again, the global production. The only country on earth today that has a meaningful supply of workers at scale is India. So there isn't a way, again, to repeat that either. And so we had this super normal period of labor. So when we look, so when we, when we look at a report like this, we're looking at those two factors. How much do we expect, how much growth is there in the workforce? Uh, how much growth is there on the consumer side, right? Where is the demand for that coming? We were in a world after World War II that was uh, supply-constrained growth. In other words, and that's wonky, for there was, uh, we didn't have enough stuff. We had less stuff than people wanted. So if you made it, mm. people bought it. And the really important questions businesses had to ask themselves was, what do I make? This was capital mm. allocation, right? How do I decide where to invest? Mm. Because I have many good options. I'm looking for the best one. When, by the time China entered the work, China really integrated into the global economy at the end in the late 80s, we'd gone from a period of having blown up Europe, right, mm -hmm. having blown up Japan in World War II, really the U.S. being the last industrial base, to those areas recovering, Japan recovering and how, then adding China so we went from being supply constrained to demand constrained, which means hmm. more stuff than warm beating hearts. So when you have more stuff, it's deflationary. The question you ask yourself is, where do I find the cheapest supply? 
Uh, how do I find the lowest labor costs? That's where you see the erosion of wages in advanced economies. So we look at all of those dynamics, where the workforce is, where the demand is, what are the investments of capital that might change that dynamic? What are substitutions uh, over that time period? And if you step back, it becomes a pretty clear arc and narrative if you don't get drawn into the sort of day-to-day battles about what this headline or that headline means. Interesting. And uh, again, I think, thank you so much for walking us. That's a very critical, very, very critical stage of the, of, of the report. So I think something that, that we observe a lot nowadays, we talked a lot of, lot of executives about their struggles with, with this era of, of technology. So they are saying almost every industry is seeing an S curve disruption uh, in 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 lot of their their aspect. Even I think I remember talking to one of the one of the one of the power plant uh, uh, technology executive. He said, hey, "You know, Shal, let me show you my my vendor list." He just opened up his vendor list for a boiler, and there were like about eight hundred and seventy uh, vendors for just uh, powering this boiler. And said each of these vendors going through in, in their own disruption headaches, right? So when you when you're going through this, where technology is really evolving rapidly, like we are suddenly uh, at a, at a juncture where we are a lot more capable of doing a lot more fun stuff that we anticipated. Yeah. How much harder does it get for some something someone like you to predict the future when uh, when even the today is very turbulent when it comes to sort of where where the where the shift is happening when it comes to productivity and whether it, it comes to manufacturing and, and, and what and whatnot. Right. That is a fantastic question. And what we've seen interestingly, right, over the last 30 years, we went through a period that was called the Great Moderation. And we didn't mm-hmm. have, we had very limited wars. If you live in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, obviously, that was not, you were in a war zone, Syria. Most of, but really more rock, smaller contained conflicts with limited impact. The global economy was pretty stable. And we had, we had the fine, not, not forgetting the global financial crisis, but the mm. period leading up to that crisis, then a very stable period, despite the headlines. And Europe's going to blow up. Oh, whoops, it forgot. Growth in the U.S. was fairly stable. China, of course, grew through that period. And businesses the combination of extra supply, right, this demand-constrained environment, this deflationary push, and a very stable world had businesses really focused on being efficient, driving mm-hmm. out costs, uh, having the, a 5,000-kilometer supply chain to reach the, mm-hmm. the most efficient producer, and we created this global system. Well, efficient means you strip out all of the padding it's also very brittle. And so Mm. you asked how we predict the future. We do it very Mm. badly, right? I don't think anyone Mm. can predict the future, but what we can say is this is going to be a much more volatile period, Mm. just as you pointed out, driven by technology, by changing demographics. It's also going to be a period where every business is going to make mistakes. Because it turns out they're run by people. I don't know about you, but I can't even, I've lost track of the mistakes I've made today, let alone Mm. looking out over three or five years for a planning process. And so what do you do as as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, as a worker during that time period? Well, you invest in what we call resilience. So what are the, if you look forward five years, 
what would have made your business go away? What is the mm -hmm. thing that could go wrong starting today? And are there moves you can make to try to hedge that, create options in case you're wrong? So in the case of a technology, do you want to bet 100% on one? Do you want to mm -hmm. build all your factory capacity in a single country? Or do you break it up? It's more expensive to be resilient, right? Like insurance, you're adding a layer of cost. So we're not saying you need to, you, there's no way to risk proof your business, but betting on a single course of action is very dangerous. And what we I find at Bain when we work, uh, when we look at companies around the world and when they do scenario planning, they tend to do scenarios by getting really, really attached to one outcome they all kind of agree mm -hmm. with with a lot of detail, but that's not really scenario planning. Scenario planning is what mm -hmm. would what would break my business this way? What would make my business this way? What would I want to do today? What are my the no regrets moves that I would do? What is Facebook bought Instagram and WhatsApp, right? Why did it do that? Because those were the technologies that could have crushed it out of existence. So it bought them. And when it bought, bought WhatsApp for $22 billion, I was one of the people who thought, holy cow, that's a really big mm. price. But if you look at where they are today, it looks brilliant, right? All of those kinds of options look brilliant in retrospect. So what are the options? What is the technology you want to own or control uh, that could break your business? Where, where do you want to partner? What's your ecosystem? Where are your relationships? All of those are the questions. And it varies business by business. But it's mm. a lot more investment and resiliency and a clear vision because, of course, any public company will say, oh, that sounds great, Karen. Thanks for telling me I should spend a lot of money and miss quarterly earnings so I get fired mm. as a CEO. That's really helpful, supportive advice. So it's really uh, thinking about how do you say I am investing versus I am uh, spending more than I should and not being thoughtful. And does the market believe that you'll be a winner? based on this strategy, or do they just think you're trying to play catch up and, and paper over a problem? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. No, I think that's I, I always have a um, lot of respect for for at least the consulting companies who actually do research because they have a they have a fabulous vantage point. They have access to amazing companies that they're working with. They are actually working on strategy for pretty interesting and, and futuristic. So I think that any time sort of when something like this drops uh, for all of us to chew, I think that's that's definitely a delight and, and a treat for all of us. So, what are some of the some of the interesting surprise uh, surprises that you encountered in this in, in your journey to publish this report? I, what we had thought going in, our hypothesis was that we knew the workforce was decelerating, the growth in the workforce was decelerating. We hmm. have thought that that trend of supply versus demand constrained growth was a cycle, and that we'd reached the end of this demand constrained growth period. And that workers, we'd seen this, that inequality was at highs, historic highs that it hadn't been since prior to World War II. But we thought the cycle would be much like we saw in World War II, hopefully without the giant war, where you had growing 
demand constrained, and then uh, and then we had a period of supply constrained, and then demand constrained, and then we'd go back to a supply constrained world where inequality would uh, would would ameliorate to some degree. Mm. And we were uh, in a su surprised or um, concerned to see the degree to which we start from historically high levels of inequality today, and that that only mm. gets worse that we don't in fact go uh, to a supply constrained world at all by losing workers because automation actually expands the productive capacity. And that mm -hmm. period of diminishing expectations and opportunities for the, not just people who work in physically demanding labor, but the pink collar labor, the kind of low accounting and so forth, that really, uh, that was a very concerning, and dramatic outcome. And it, it's, again, it, the time frame matters. By tw if by 2050, everyone is reintegrated into different jobs. In the US, for example, if we change the definition of full-time work to 27 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week, we could solve much of this problem, if not all of it. And so some of it's uh, self-inflicted or just definitional. But nonetheless, e even with this displacement, I don't think we consider ourselves worse off in a world where no human being had to do physically demanding labor, right? Not having mm -hmm. to opera pick up piles or do not craftsmanship, which I think people there are people who find joy in that, but simply pick up heavy object, move it, wear out back over time, you know, stoop up, stoop up. I I think. Freeing human beings from that sort of labor through automation would be a positive if we were able to find productive activities for those people. So hmm. uh, over time, all this automation that creates this displacement, creates this inequality, will lead to a potentially better quality of life for everyone. But I think to hmm. deny the challenge, the fact that this is a protracted in one to two decades, say 15 years of volatility, and not plan and think about how each, for each society, what that looks like and how to ameliorate it would be a mistake starting now. So I think it's the combination of just how dramatic that transition, how volatile, how challenging it will be, along with the potential for human beings that, that is at the end of that is an interesting, uh, it was a sort of startling contrast. Interesting, interesting. And I think one thing I was thinking about, um, I, I think you recently, a uh, few minutes back, you, you, you talked about automation would sort of, it, there's a boom period and then, then it will go bust. What is, what is sparking that thought? Like what are, why do you say that? Um, if, if you can walk us through, the, through, through that mindset. Sure. So as the automation becomes available, let's take a simple example of a restaurant, right? Now a small restaurant that has one chef and two sous chefs. And the sous chefs chop onions and prep sauces and do sort of basic tasks. In five to seven years, that those ta that can be automated. So today you have a restaurant with counter space for two people to work with sharp knives side by side, takes more space. Uh, in five years' time or seven years' time, you could take those two sous chefs as robots, stack them, right, mm -hmm. each with their own tray, and stick them in a dark closet. You don't need light. You need to be able to open it to repair them. But otherwise, so suddenly you you either 
you either free up a lot of floor space for tables or for creating a delivery service or you shrink your footprint of your restaurant. All of that, it's not just the purchasing of the robot that creates a lot of spend, but all of that infrastructure. So that's mm. what part of the boom is. Half of it is just the robotics, which won't be generally as uh, have as much impact, but half of it is the retrofitting, the creation of the new retail outlets, the new restaurants, the new store footprints that all are uh, ac that accommodate a new level of automation. So during that time period, lots of capital being spent, lots of construction, lots of economic growth. But of course, every time a restaurant refits to put those cool new robot sous chefs in, two sous chefs lose their jobs. And so that's why, I mean, you have this interesting period where the economy is growing. It's a supply side boom, lots of money being spent, interest rates mm -hmm. rising over five years, six years, seven years, an extended period of time. But underneath that, the steady erosion of job categories that leaves us at the end with a lot more capacity than we had, but a lot less demand for it. And so that's where the bust comes at the end of that cycle. Interesting. I think that's uh, pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it's very cool, but yes, I think uh, so. One thing that 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 that, I'm, that I can think about. So in in previous, if if we say f follow the past trends, right? So um, what we have seen that um, so someone when the when Seagate said, hey, you know, we can actually store the things inside your the box in your living room, maybe. Pretty awesome, and everyone said, "No, no, no! It's it's, it's like data center. Like it's very difficult to imagine. Can you shrink this to to that level?" So, in in your understanding of this, where the technology evolution is happening, and sort of where we can see the um, the bust after investment, so do you do you sort of uh, account for the unknown unknowns, like the the growth that would evolve once you stack these two guys or these robotic arms? in dark closet and I'm almost feeling hungry now. So so that that can actually um, um, do stuff that, hey, you know, there could be a possibility of furthermore automation sure. that these two arms would create that probably these businesses could compensate. Like what are your thoughts on that? Right, so there's gonna be a couple of things that offset this. One is um, simple, again, in, in wonky economists speak demand elasticity. So if you think about this automated restaurant, imagine if you could, if in this, because you've automated it, that you could now, they could cook a full organic local ingredient hot meal and mm -hmm. have it drone delivered to your house for less than the price of groceries, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'd be mm -hmm. eating a lot more drone mm -hmm. delivered meals <laughs> than I do. <laughs> I don't need any today, but you wouldn't, you know, take out his, People don't do it because it's even in a dense city like New York, it's more expensive <laughs> than groceries. But if it were right. cheaper, it would tr it, the, the demand for restaurants would go through the roof, right? It would rise. Mm. And so there is, but there are other things like roof repair or haircuts that if they're cheaper, you're just happy they're cheaper. You're not going to get your roof repaired more often because it's less expensive. Mm. You'll just be happy. And so we looked at each one of those categories to look at. Uh, how that, what that impact would be. And that, that actually did reduce the job loss, but not, again, still leaves us with an mm. estimate of between uh, one in four and one in five jobs displaced in the, in the depths mm. of this period, so the end of it. So there's that. 
but to your question about innovation driving innovation, right? Of course, we never know. Mm. GPS wasn't the, having Google Maps wasn't the vision right. for satellites in space. So there's always that kind of meandering path. Our, and we remain fundamentally optimistic, again, about the ultimate outcomes so of 2050. But when you look at previous cycles, so in the U.S., when we moved from being an agriculture economy to a manufacturing mm. economy. Let's take 1900 mm. to 1940 mm. as that period. Mm. 40 years, a world war, the run up to a second world war, a depression, at right? mm. 1.2 million jobs lost per year. Of course, at the end, we're better off, right? Than we mm. were when people were farmers. They're more affluent, we're, there's better nutrition, people are, taller, whatever, all of the whatever metric, I'm only five feet one, so being taller is relative in my case. Uh, but it's the, but the, but we could say that the human, that we were better off, but that period was a very tricky adjustment. That was, mm. again, 40 years, and I don't know that any of us would advocate that particular path to get there. When we look forward now at the, just at the, kinds of transitions that we can measure and estimate based on the technology we have today. We're mm. looking at 2.5 million jobs a year lost over 20 years versus about half of that over 40 years. What we've seen through the U.S. through the last few cycles, so not just agriculture to industry, but when we went from manufacturing to services or even the construction mm. boom bust, that we create about 700,000 new jobs a year on average. Obviously, that's not a steady number, but we can reabsorb about 700,000 workers a year. So let's say in this period of innovation and new technologies that we believe the metabolism of the U.S. economy is twice as fast, that we're twice mm. as innovative as we've ever been in history. So that's 1.4 million jobs a year being mm. absorbed. And I, so forget about where they come from. Let's just assert that they're out there somewhere. That mm. still leaves us with the level of displacement we had in agriculture industry. It's still mm. over a million jobs a year uh, of displacement, which wasn't exactly a smooth transition then. So our view is simply, it's not that we are short, shorting human innovation, <laughs> but realistically, there's only so fast these new jobs come online. And of course, we've seen that the most innovative com companies over the last decade or two have had fewer and fewer jobs on offer in, than in prior periods where it was more labor intensive. But, mm. and so that's, that's why we caution about this period of volatility. It's hard to create a scenario where we float, skate, or where we have this level of transition and we don't feel it. Interesting. And I think, um, so you also talked about um, era of plentiful labor is ending. I think so that's, so number one, what is plentiful labor? And then and then if you can sp sort of uh, shed more light on uh, like what, why it's declining. Right. So labor superabundance just is this, there is a, a, an era where labor was growing very rapidly, where your workforce mm -hmm. was expanding. So you were competing, uh, so labor competed based on price. Uh, and that you saw, you saw the, we see the impacts of that today where this tremendous economic transition that China went through moving hundreds of millions of people out of subsistence into mm. middle class consumption, uh, 
uh, happened where global inequality declined, right? More people middle class than subsistence for the first time in mm. in history that we've that we've been tracking as human beings. At the same time, the absolute real incomes of workers in many advanced economies, particularly the U.S., declined. So we saw that. So inequality within countries growing, while inequality globally growing. And that's hmm. one example of labor superabundance, where you're competing as a worker based on price. And so companies can find labor elsewhere, push down the the earnings of labor, the gains to labor um, out of total economic wealth creation have been declining. That's but if you, in specific numbers, we went from having workforce growth in the U.S. of you know, 1.2% a year to today uh, close to 0.4% a year. So it's really just gone. It's dropped. That's what dramatic dropping in growth looks like in Europe. The workforce over from the 2020s and 2030s will be shrinking by 0.5% a year. So negative growth. China's workforce again shrinking. So it's going from a period where where there were more warm bodies that you needed, you could play them off against each other, they had to compete mm -hmm. on price, where the most productive, efficient, cheapest workers won. This was the, and the development model was export-led growth, right? So you'd get efficient labor. It started in Japan and the Asian tigers and in China, really the pinnacle of that, where cheap, productive labor created goods to be consumed by wealthier people abroad. When you have declining labor uh, and, and where labor costs then get automated away, export-led growth doesn't work anymore. So even if you have labor, if that depends on somebody abroad wanting to buy your things, you really need domestic demand, which is where India becomes a very interesting mm. story because, of course, it has a lot of income disparity, a lot of poor people, but a sufficient middle class and, and wealthy class to support a lot of domestic innovation in ways that... Uh, other countries, like, for example, Saudi Arabia with a growing workforce, uh, may not have. Interesting. And um, I think well said. So what's the resolve in that? Like, what is what are, what are some of the solutions that one could do? So if you're a, a, if you're a country, if you're a company, it depends on what your perspective is. Uh, I think we've seen companies really begin to focus on how do we skill our workforce, recognizing that um, that they're part of more and more companies are thinking about themselves, at least our clients are thinking mm -hmm. of themselves as as part of an ecosystem. So as stakeholders, so we went through the era of shareholder value, really focused on the owners of the company. Today, companies really think about themselves within their communities as as their stakeholders being their employees, the, the suppliers they work with, the environment they live in, the cities they live in, and thinking more and more about how do we participate in, uh, in creating better uh, working environments. Is that paying, mm -hmm. is it subsidizing university education, which has some payoff? Is it doing what Lowe's did, which is paying for people to go, get certificates in technical vocational fields that where there's a shortage plumbing or uh, skilled trades where in the U.S. we've historically where we continue to have uh, needs in those areas um, and others in this agitating for thinking about how do we 
remove the, some of the cost burden from the working class. And I think we'll see more and more tensions going forward between between generations. That's a concern that we raise because we've made a lot of commitments to people who are retiring for whom it's too late to go back and say, well, I'll live my life differently and have a different pool of savings, right? This big baby boomer generation. Now we're talking about displaced workers in the next decade. Who wins? Who gets the resources? And so when you see the teachers striking in Arizona, why is that happening? Well, municipalities are paying their pensions. They have commitments that they've made that take away the budget for investing in education. So we're already seeing the early signs of that. So we're going to have to start to make decisions about who gets resources, who we support, what that looks like. Um, and I would encourage, and we encourage the, and we hear the boards of our clients, the executive teams, really participating in discussions about these societal challenges in ways that 20 years ago, businesses felt like their business was running their business. Now, hmm. um, it's much more of a of a citizenship role that we see. And there, you could probably name six leaders easily that are examples of that. But I think that's a very hmm. positive uh, development. Interesting. And 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 um, you also talked about. Um, uh, I was reading on the report. Um, inequality threatens growth, right? Yeah. So, like, if you can shed some light on that, like, why and how? Sure. So, at some point, it, it, if you're rich enough, you don't consume more. You end up saving your mm. incremental money. If you're poor, every dollar you get, you spend because you're spending it on basics, and the middle class is somewhere in between. And so, I used to say my um, uh, I'm not a much of a car person, and I used to say that there are only so many, you know, Birkin handbags you can shove in the trunk of a Ferrari uh, before you mm -hmm. run out of space. Until my husband mm -hmm. came and saw me speak once and said, "You know, Ferraris don't have trunks, right?" <laughs> so, <laughs> completely destroyed that metaphor. But uh, the point being that if, if, if money gets con wealth concentration, income inequality. Mm -hmm means that people who would be spending don't because they don't have the money mm. and they need it. And so, uh, and so that's why we say it slows down consumption growth. We've even seen it in the U.S. since 2015. Uh, savings have been eroding. So while consumer spend has remained steady, it's been on the back of running down savings. So it's clearly not sustainable. And so this is, I mean, obviously, um, thing we believe in in markets. I'm not advocating for blunt scale redistribution, mm -hmm. but at the same time, when you think about the programs advocating for policy, really getting at the heart of what are people lower income and particularly the the eroding middle class spending their money on, and how do we support that? Rent has become more expensive. Healthcare has been a big challenge for the middle class. Can we find mm -hmm. a way to support that spend that unlocks them to have disposable income in ways that really create growth rather than just you know, keeping themselves alive? Interesting. Interesting. So um, another, another thing that that, uh, that I found interesting was, so you were talking about that rising productivity, it solves one problem and then creates another yeah. right so what 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 has been your observation like what what are you seeing from your from your research right so this is where we had a, the problem it solves is if you're if you're running out of workers finding a way to have a machine do it instead 
solves mm. that problem. But the mm. technology, to your point earlier, is developing so quickly that we actually create more capacity through automation mm. than, uh, than we need to replace workers. And so we ultimately end up displacing part of the human workforce through the solution to this shrinking workforce. So that's the, that's the juxtaposition there. Interesting. And, and um, you also talking about arc of the turbulence 2020. Like what, what's that, if you can, uh, you can shed some light? I'm sorry, talk about what, which sort of turbulence? So I think there was arc of turbulent uh, right. 2020. Right. So what, what, what was that? So that is really the, the, the short-term rising wages where we'll see interest rates rise a little bit. We expect a cyclical recession sometime before 2020. Right? So then we see interest rates come back down, wages under pressure. And then as this investment in supply begins to grow, that's that boom-bust cycle. So that arc is the the acceleration mm. of investment, the rising interest rates, the spending capital, accelerating growth rates at the top line, followed by that, that bust at the end where the jobs have eroded. And so the demand just isn't there to support what's been built. Interesting. So if, if I'm a business, like what's how can I how could I exist in 2030? Like what are some of the recommendations that you could suggest um, from your findings? So practically speaking, we're seeing the erosion of what had been the middle class in the United States. Mm. We live in a culture in a country where there's an affluent 20%, a middle 30% that had been uh, and then this lower half, 50% of households that really live off income and subsidies, that middle mm. 30% get, is going to get squeezed in one direction or the other. A few will be part of that top 20% affluent, but largely we'll see instead of a 20, 30, 50, a 20, 80 consuming group. And for that 80%, mm. the question is, what can you, how can you serve their needs perfectly without extras, right? What are the things that they absolutely value and desire in white goods, in cars while individuals still drive them, in mm-hmm. food, uh, in, in housing that is good, that is quality, but in the areas that they value. And for the affluent, it's more and more concierge, bespoke, uh, premiumized product. And so that bifurcation in the market as a business, what you don't want to be is okay. Okay for everyone is not a great market position to be in. Really pay attention to the welfare of the group that you're in, that you're trying to serve and serve those needs, not looking through the rearview mirror. That is certainly one area. Um, being careful about this boom and bust in investment and physically mm-hmm. where is that space. If you're building middle class housing in inner, in uh, tier one cities, people won't be able to afford it, right? So how mm-hmm. are you thinking about where people are, uh, what their needs are in serving those groups? There's more and more data available about customers. Should Amazon know more about your customers than you do? How do you understand and delight them um, in ways that has that has a your unique value proposition? And that's the starting point. For every business, of course, it'll be different. But I think really understanding the endpoint um, and and serving the needs of those customers is the is the critical starting point. Interesting. And so if I'm an individual, um, thinking about this grind that's going to happen and that's happening for me, how could I exist? 
through this through this turbulent times it, again it's investing in resiliency so understanding right now if you think you're serving the customers that are going to have stress on their income how do i look at my mm. products right now and make them more cost effective for my customer. That's not to say worse quality, but in everything there are features that we use and features that we don't. How do you understand what are the features that customers don't value? The good news is you can scale down production across so many categories now. Can you create different subcategories of need that serve them? Um, what is it, uh, it, really doing your due diligence and what your investments are tied to, we often see if you read a company's financial statements, the analysis is, you know, for the last 10 years X. Well, the last 10 years started with the financial crisis and, and mm. is, is not a great benchmark for what things will look like. So having a clear view of what you think your world will look like, a future back vision, and where you'd want to invest to uh, survive to that transition. That's really the best advice we can give more broadly, of course, for every, again, for every specific company um, that matters. Really, today, for any company, shoring up your balance sheet, right? If we, it, we have a strong hypothesis that it, in the next decade, interest rates are going to rise. And so, mm -hmm. is your balance sheet in shape to survive that? What's your shopping mm -hmm. list if it is? If you're in a strong condition, what kind of M&A would you want to do to build up your company's uh, again, it's your company's resiliency. Those are the sorts of things that we'd want to look at right now um, while the window to recapitalize, to, uh, to shore up the balance sheet, to think about who, where, who you'd want to buy at what price. Those, that's windows open now. So it's a great time to be really thoughtful. Interesting. And, and if, what's the role of government in this? Like say if, I'm a, if, if I'm a government official and obviously we talk to a lot of folks they, they are they are trying to figure out this this massive wave of what they call it unemployment and, and decline in tax collection like however you want to look at it right so they are also having this anxiety attacks about this tra this transition period how should like, what's what is their role um, to to circumvent this uh, the situation yeah. and there's no question that there's going to be a stronger role of the state Right. We saw it during any time there's this kind of upheaval. Mm. These are not solutions that any individual mm. employer or town can solve on their own. So we see the, a greater need for that collaboration and we expect to see a greater demand for it, quite frankly, that there's a, there'll be an expectation that there'll be more support. I, I'm, I was really intrigued. I just read an article yesterday about Boeing that spent mm. its tax, uh, its tax break on programs, training programs for the workers, and it developed those by asking them, right, having mm. message boards and sessions and saying, what do you guys want? And I do think uh, that fine art of listening, listening to each other, instead of either advocating for specific regulations for um, specific types of relief, but thinking that we'll need to work this sounds a little utopian, but I don't see mm. a way of getting around working more collectively um, or in conjunction, private and public sector to create, have the right people, right groups own the programs. Um, there's no point in having state-sponsored job retraining if employers don't want to solve, hire for those skills. So if we if we can't really listen and talk to each other, it's going to be uh, it's going to be even more challenging. Interesting. Uh, 
fabulous by the way karen i think thank you so much for for such a interesting uh, report so if if i want to have access to this where where could where could our readers and viewers get access to this report it's very easy it's you can download it for free on bain.com um under our macro trends page or just google bain uh, labor 2030 and it should take you right to the link it's available for anyone uh anyone interested in pdf form and i would encourage you to read it if you have the time and inclination interesting and and to our our, our, our listeners and, and viewers we'll put a we'll put a link on the description as well so they would be able to get access to this report and so now we are at the tail end of the conversation uh karen and i, I want to spend some time on your journey um so i i ask all of our guests to sort of help understand their background and i think one of the thing that uh, that we asked was uh what are some of the things maybe one to three tenets of your success in this journey if what would you pan it on to so I, i mean i think success is defined only on one's own terms um i think i know obviously i feel i've been very fortunate um i have great i have two great kids i really i i love the company i work with i love working at bain i have a um a a great spouse who's very supportive but i think having a vision of what it is that you want um i think for me personally i have a very short list of non-negotiables and everything else i say i'll live anywhere actually uh i've lived on i've lived everywhere from africa to australia to all over the united states north south east and west literally i've lived in europe i can sort of be happy from a, I, i can be happy anywhere um and so there's sort of certain if you have if you let if you have a if you go after a very short set of things and everything else is to let go it's a lot easier to achieve, accomplish a short list of objectives that is one thing and know know what know what those things are that make you happy um you know i hesitate to give too much advice because i think growing up where i did having parents that valued education uh lived in an area that had great public schools able to uh Sacramento they were able to send me to Stanford that's not i mean that's not a path that you can just advocate for someone you know, live in mm. live in a great school district and go to a great university is outside the reach for many people but i do think uh having a a short having a short list rather than a long list and being really honest with yourself about about the life you want to live and what matters helps a lot it's very easy to get distracted by other people's goals especially if they feel mm-hmm. them powerfully and passionately interesting so and um what are some of your favorite read- reads or books that you could recommend to our listeners and viewers right. so i have a i there are two types of books i love one is um I, i've been reading a lot about history recently i just finished mm. uh the proud tower by barbara tuckman i actually have a sort of virtual book club with steve levine who writes the future of work column at axios uh we both and really like it's fascinating and it's such an interesting parallel to the period we're in today that's sort of 1880 mm-hmm. to that's it's the sort of prequel to the guns of august world war 2 uh, world war 1 mm-hmm. excuse me and so i've enjoyed that i loved uh victor frankel and his memoirs of i loved as much as you can love some of these memoirs of surviving a death camp you know yay mm. uh that's that's fascinating <laughs> especially uh, with my own um family history uh, but i also love just escapism my goodness jane austen never gets old i think i've read pride and prejudice uh mm. enough to quote it in fact i named 
my daughter Georgiana after Mr. Darcy's <laughs> sister. Uh, so um, I think a lot of uh, of women in particular share that obsession. But it's so it's such a nice escape to remember that people uh, haven't changed much. Mm. They uh, and her irony and wit is always a nice refreshing break from the world we're in today. Interesting, fascinating um, list of books, and and thank you for sharing that. So. Last but not the least, uh, if we want um, our listeners, if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, what would what would that be? Like, what would be a closing remark for for our listeners and viewers? I, I would just say that resiliency, prioritize resiliency as well as efficiency. So, what are mm. the investments you would want to make today to help you survive your own mistakes over the next five years? Um, where being wrong really is fatal versus shaking it off and having a clear view of what that is. That would be, I think, the most important uh, technique to develop now. Interesting. With that, uh, Karen, again, thank you so much for uh, being really generous with your time um, and spending on uh, a very crucial topic that defines the future of our existence, uh, at least professional existence. And I think I do appreciate your research and do appreciate um, whatever you're doing to help us understand and navigate uh, through this transformative times. And you're always welcome back on the podcast. Uh, hopefully there's a sequel to this uh, or there would be any other interesting trends that, that you come across that you want to share. Uh, always years and thank you so much for spending good time with us uh, and helping us understand the future. Thank you and thank you for listening. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this